The Art of Hiding by J. M. Griffith. Chapter 12. Art and Games with Boxer and Lucas. Toby Croucher led the way to school. He was accompanied by Cayman Pike, whose long lope of a walk easily kept pace with his friend's confident strides, as did Tristan's scurry, which left the impression that he was about to break out into a sprint at any moment with all his pent-up energy. Only Nan struggled to keep up. They had turned left outside the painted pilchard inn, following the road that stayed within a stone's throw away from the shore and the seawall and led away from the town square up the gently rising cobbled thoroughfare towards the cliffs. At the end of the road was a stone archway and emblazoned across it in a carved wooden plaque were the words, The Benjamin Wallace Thirdly School. A heavy wooden gate spanned the archway and for all the world it appeared as if the school lay within the heart of the cliffs. Other children were also returning to school after going home for lunch and, as a group of pupils in front of them opened the wooden gate, Nan could see some crude stone steps cut into the cliff. In fact, now Nan looked, she could see the figures of several children at different stages along the steep zigzagging path which kept folding back on itself and then back again as it angled up the cliff face. Toby held the gate open for the Elliots, as Tristan bounded up the steps with all the agility and grace of a hyperactive llama. Tristan went first, with Toby following, while the ever-relaxed Cayman, hands never leaving his pockets, not even on the most precarious sections of the path, remained content with dawdling back at Nan's pace. This isn't the only path leading to school, he mentioned to Nan. There's a safer one they make us take after heavy rain or ice. But it's so dull, you lose the will to walk after five seconds. How many pupils does the school have? About five, maybe six hundred, maybe more, maybe less, Cayman said uncertainly. There's no way Wanish and Dab can have five or six hundred children. For sure, but many of them are on field trips at the moment. There's often a hundred or so on field trips. We start on them this term. Will we be in the same classes as you and Toby? asked Nan. Yeah, for sure. You're almost 13, aren't you? Nan nodded. Yeah, you'll be with us. No point throwing you to the first years. They continued traipsing up the cliff. Came and negotiated the hard, deep steps with practised ease, while Nan puffed and panted to keep up. Toby and Tristan had already reached the top. Nan stopped to take a quick breather on one of the broader steps and gazed out over Wanish Limply spread before her. Most of the giant trees still towered above them, even on the cliffs, and some of the farthest houses were obscured from view by the bulk of the sequoia, the feathery branches of which clung close to the trunk. Nevertheless, the tree never seemed to leave the town in constant shade. It simply filtered light down into gentle greens, blues and greys, dappled all over the various sections of Wanish. Smoke reefed up from the chimneys. People flowed and mingled through the streets in tiny currents of movement. 
and with the tide in and the causeway underwater, the island once again took on the appearance of some enormous leviathan slumbering just offshore, its thick harbour walls like resting pincers extending out towards Wanish. Only the seagulls spoiled a sense of peace with their boisterous declarations of existence. The whole town nestled snugly into its cove among the cliffs and possessed an appealing, yet far from sickly, sweet beauty to it. Ah, oh, it's beautiful, said Nan in an awestruck voice. Suppose, replied Cayman indifferently. On the last part of the path, the steps were fashioned with more care, and when Nan looked up, she could see that they led up through the centre of a squat stone tower that stood at the top of the cliff. That can't be the school, asked Nan. No, that's just the watchtower, built ages ago, apparently. School's further on, came and informed her. You be all right playing rugby? Never played, except when Triss makes me, she replied. Don't think I'll be much use, but Triss will be in his element. He's not at all nasty, and he never means to hurt anyone, but he does have a gift for violence. <laughs> Lucas makes him play, but Cayman's not keen on rugby either, Cayman said. All that running around inside rectangles? <laughs> That's not challenge. That's not adventure. Mum says that rules and boundaries limit the spirit. Mind you, do not stop her from setting Cayman a curfew, though, does it? Nan heaved herself up the last few steps which led through another gate built into the watchtower and out into the playing fields. Further inland beyond the playing fields was a large, elegant, two-storey building backing onto the side of a small hill. It was large for a house, but small for a school, and Nan wondered how such a place could educate more than a couple of hundred pupils rather than the five or six hundred purported to attend it. How many kids go here? Tristan asked. Round about 500, replied Toby. No way, said Tristan in disbelief. Cayman, how many loons go to this school? No, yeah, about five, maybe 600, Cayman replied, repeating himself and Toby. But as I said to Nan, many of them were on field trips. A path skirted the playing fields, curving round from the watchtower to the front of the building. The Elliots followed Toby and Cayman as they led the way to school. How long does a field trip last then, said Tristan. Sometimes a couple of hours, said Toby. Sometimes a couple of months. You mean, it's like being at school all the time for a whole term, Tristan exclaimed. Now that is tragic. How can you say that when you're pleading with me to come to school today, laughed Toby. I'd like to play with fire, Tobe. Don't mean I want to live in a furnace, though, declared Tristan. I was only tempted by the games. Rugby's my weakness. Away from the town, the cliffs extended off into the horizon in a grassy carpet with nothing more distinctive than a rocky outcrop as a landmark. There was something about the horizon that particularly bothered Nan. She would not know how to describe it to anyone, and she guessed it had to be an optical illusion, but Nan felt the sky seemed to bend the further they walked away from the centre of Wanish Limply, as if curving downwards to meet the land. There was something else preying on her mind too. The nearer they got to the school building, the more closely it resembled a fortress with parapets, hefty rivet-studded doors and even a moat. It was clearly a school, however, judging by the amount of reluctant children that were filing back through its doors. The party from the painted pilchard mounted a small flight of stone steps, 
walked over the bridge across an empty grass-covered moat, up another set of stairs, through a smaller opening cut out of a huge pair of wood and iron doors, and into the school's entrance hall. The hall was elegant but sparsely decorated. Two corridors led away, one to the left and one to the right wings of the building. A third advanced forwards through an area of comfortable chairs and sofas, and up to a broad staircase leading to the first floor. Now Nan understood how the school could house more pupils than it first appeared, because many of the classrooms were built into the side of the hill the building backed onto. Groups of children scampered back and forth across the hall and down the corridors. Some remained clustered in gangs, peering at the notice boards or just dawdling about, chattering loudly. All of them were wearing the distinctive parachute packs strapped to their backs. Nan and Tristan made quite an impression as they entered. For a brief moment, all eyes turned to them and the level of chatter faded and then almost immediately rose back up to its normal strident level. The conversations were now peppered with the words imps, Elliots and caretaker. Ignoring all the comments, Tristan, Toby and Cayman headed for the boys' toilet on one side of the hall and Nan headed for the girls on the opposite side, feeling slightly alone and abandoned. She was washing her hands in front of the broad mirror stretching the length of one wall of the toilets when a girl of about Nan's own age approached the basin beside her. Glancing up at the girl's reflection in the mirror, Nan duly noticed that the girl was attractive in a severe, angular way, all cheekbones and sharp features. Her hair was scraped back from her head into a ponytail. Hmm, I bet the secret's driving you mad, isn't it? asked the girl without looking up from rinsing her long, delicate fingers under the hot water. Nan did not reply at first, believing the girl to be talking to someone else, but no one else was nearby. I know it drove us mad when we first arrived here all those years ago, the girl continued. Not that I can remember, of course. I was far too young. But Rex was driven half wild with curiosity over that secret. Would you like to tell me what it is? ventured Nan. The girl thought for a moment and rubbed away some mark on the mirror that had been making one of her eyes appear distorted in the glass. She soon restored the image to perfection, although the steam from the hot water she'd left running was beginning to fog her reflection. I'm tempted to, but I can't, she answered. There's much more about this community that drives me and my family mad, but the rules governing the keeping of the secret from imps, sorry, I mean outsiders, is one of the few things that make sense to me, at least for the moment. You're Hannah Elliot, aren't you? I prefer Nan. It seems everyone knows our names. The appointment of a new caretaker is not something that's taken lightly in this town, especially when it's an imp, <laughs> sorry, outsider, who's only known to and been nominated by two of the caretaker council. And so quickly. It really wasn't fair, you know. But your father has done the decent and wise thing by stepping down, so it gives my brother the position he deserves. I think you've met my brother, Rex. I'm Shelley Fordsley. For some reason, the two girls were still talking to each other via Nan's portion of the mirror, rather than looking at each other face to face. Shelley's own section of the mirror had clouded over completely, but she was still picking at some flaw in the glass with her fingernail. Will Rex be the new caretaker now? Nan asked. Beyond question. It's a pity that the death seemed to be the only way a position opens up, or Rex would probably be leading the caretakers by now. Well, second to the great molten Shoreditch, of course. And what do you think of uh, Adrian, Elliot? Shelley Fawsley turned to face Nan. It's all right, Nan assured her. He may be my uncle, but I'm not that attached to him. <laughs> well, in that case, 
said Shelley, smiling with relief. To tell you the truth, Nan, I think he holds everything back. If only I could explain it all to you. There's so much potential in Davenwanish, more than in any other place on the rest of this planet, I shouldn't wonder. We have things here to make you yelp with fry or cry with happiness, and it's all just stored rarely experimented with and there's so much it could do for bad as well as good i admit but we should take the chance shouldn't we it was clearly a speech close to shelley's heart and something she'd preached more than once before the bell rang outside and shelley turned off the water taps and gathered her things together i'm really pleased to have met you nan she said and i feel that i owe you a debt of thanks for rex I don't know what's happened to you since your arrival here, but try to remember the strangest things about the strangest situations you might have found yourself in. There may or may not be a link, but you might just get somewhere as far as the main secret of Wanish goes. It requires a leap of faith, but you'll get it. Shelley headed for the door, but turned back before leaving. And if you don't work it out, I'll tell you before you leave tomorrow. But that's our secret. And then she was gone. Nan did not know what to make of the meeting. There were girls similar to Shelley back in Nan's old school and they never sought out the company of anyone else but those members of their own exclusive clique. Shelley seemed to embody most of the qualities of these girls but, unlike them, also possessed directness that Nan warmed to. The Drews would have called Shelley a girl of breeding or class and would have taken to her immediately. Taking Shelley's advice, Nan tried to think of all the strange things that had happened to her over the last few days. There were so many, though, and there was no connection between any of them that she could detect, and surely Shelley should not have known about her weird dreams. Nan peered at her reflection in the mirror and suddenly spotted that written in the condensation on Shelley's section of the glass and now rapidly disappearing in the cooling air were the words, I'll put you in the picture. As she was leaving the toilet, Nan bumped into Shelley again. She was talking to a boy of about 14 with blonde hair, but he was far more than just a blonde-haired male. He was the most beautiful boy Nan had ever seen. He introduced himself as Wilton Harbinger in a quiet, hypnotic voice which, combined with his intense stare that seemed to pass right through Nan, held her under his spell for a few moments. And then he was gone walking away up the stairs arm in arm with Shelley. Another bell rang and the few remaining pupils left in the entrance hall scuttled away to their classrooms, leaving Nan alone. She wondered if her talk with Shelley had gone on longer than she'd imagined and that maybe the boys had gone to class without Nan, believing her to be there already. Nan soon dismissed that idea because, after all, the boys knew she had no clue where the art class might be. She looked around the notice boards but they gave away nothing. Just as she was resigned to the fact that she'd have to make her own way back to the painted pilchard, Nan heard the commotion from the boys' toilets. The first few moments were simply raised muffled voices, followed by a brief micro-moment of silence, and then there were shouts and yells, until finally a group of about eight boys tumbled out of the toilets and onto the floor of the hall. Nan was totally unsurprised to see her brother in the middle of the bundle concentrating all his efforts into thumping one particular boy of his own age others pummeled into tristan's sides while toby tried wrenching them off one at a time came and pike hands still in pockets had another boy pinned down to the floor with his boot he shook his head as his opponent tried to struggle to his feet indicating to the boy that he should remain where he was 
Even with Toby's best efforts, the boys were beginning to overwhelm Tristan, and Nan now launched into the brawl with a tackle upon one of the boys that floored him instantly. Okay, guys, that's enough. A voice suddenly rang down the hall. Save it for the pitch. A short, stocky figure carrying a rugby ball bounded down the stairs. He was dressed in trainers, knee-length shorts and a long-sleeved T-shirt which showed a powerful, muscular frame. The young teacher put two fingers to his mouth and emitted an ear-piercing whistle. Most of the fighters stopped at once, but Tristan was still locked in battle with his main adversary. Guys, pack it in now, the teacher shouted, totally unfazed at the fight before him. He had an accent Nan could not place for the moment and a natural bronze tint to his skin, rare amongst the native British. In a gesture aimed to distract the two fighters, the teacher aimed the rugby ball at the brawling boys. Some innate instinct within Tristan made him catch it and he shoved his adversary back with a shoulder barge, took a solid step forward and hurled the ball with all his might. Tristan was not passing it, but using the ball as a weapon. It slammed into the stomach of the boy and he crumpled over, winded. Stone me, cried the teacher. A palm who can play the sport of angels. Now Nan recognised the accent. It was Australian. The teacher hoisted up the fallen boy with one of his muscular arms. Little shallow breaths first, David, he advised. You'll feel like you've never taken another breath in your life, but give it a minute, you'll be all right. He turned to Tristan. That was one hell of a throw, mate. You're right. Expecting the usual wrath of an outraged teacher, Tristan was entirely thrown by the sports teacher's friendly wink at him. Aren't we going to be punished then? Throws like yours and the tackle that girl there put in and the skills I'm trying to teach, he explained. I'd be a bit of a wombat to start punishing you for it. I guess you two are Elliot's then. Well... Guess what, Elliots? You got me for games this Arvo, and I'm going to check if that throw was a one-off or whether you're the genuine article. I said slow breaths, mate, he warned the pupil, who was bent double, his chest heaving with the effort of trying to breathe. I was thinking of doing some fitness work in games, but let's throw caution to the wind, shall we? I think you guys and your class, he said, pointing at Tristan, Toby and Cayman, can take on their class of rugby. He gestured towards the rest of the boys. I look forward to that. You all right now, mate? Good. To class now, guys. We've got a date later. The other boys grinned maliciously at Tristan and Toby before moving off. Who was that? Nan asked as they climbed the staircase to their art lesson. Luke Lucas, head of games, replied Cayman. Is he a sadist? Nice sound, Cayman assured her. He just appreciates a rumble, but he'd never let it get out of hand. Behind them, Toby grilled Tristan. You hadn't even been in the school ten minutes. You're in a fight. He called Russell a coward. Just ignore him. I told you to ignore him. Couldn't you have backed down and ignored him? Asked Toby. No way. I promised your father I'd look after you both, Tristan, said Toby. How am I going to explain this to him? Don't sweat it, Tobe, Tristan said dismissively. I've come home from school with far worse. We haven't had games yet. Toby reminded them. It's going to be fun on that pitch later on. Luke's idea of a game getting out of control is when limbs start flying off. Ah, oh, spanking, replied Tristan. He sounds like the teacher I've been waiting for all my life. 
Ah, Monsieur's Pike and Croucher and the Elliots at last, announced Oldman Boxer, the art teacher, as they entered his classroom. Worry not, we've not started, but we have been waiting for you in breathless anticipation. The twins recalled meeting Oldman Boxer the previous night in the inn, when he'd left them with the impression of being a busy, animated figure who could not stop bobbing his head up and down. He was now stood at the head of the classroom with a chicken under one arm looking as if he'd not only forgotten to eat lunch but had neglected to kill, pluck and cook it too. Toby and Cayman ambled down to their places at the back of the classroom and the Elliot twins sat at the desk next to them. Then Rex Fordsley, whom neither Nan nor Tristan had spotted previously, handed out paper and pencils to all the students. He did not even register the Elliots as he gave them their drawing equipment, let alone express the gratitude his sister had shown, but soon moved back to the top of the classroom where he sat unobtrusively in the corner, much as he did in the painted pilchard. There was silence from the pupils as they waited for Oldman Boxer to address them, and more importantly tell them what he was doing with a live chicken in the classroom. But the teacher was savouring the moment. He knew what they were all thinking, and he knew that he alone had the answers to their questions, but Alderman Boxer was not going to tell them just yet. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd be obliged if you would arrange yourselves into a square. The pupils had had life classes before, arrangements of kitchen utensils and fruit, or bored students getting pins and needles through lack of activity, so all the pupils quickly arranged the correct formation. Yes, yes, that's right, encouraged Mr Boxer, nodding his head in the way that suggested he was a man having muscle spasms in his neck. There we are, strictly not a true square, tending towards the oblongish, but good enough. Mr Crane, if you might move your desk back a tad to allow me passage through. Thank you. Mr Fordsley, a table and seed, please. Rex Fordsley waded through the desks with a small square table above his head. He placed it in the middle of the square and scattered seed upon it. Today we have a live life class. A true life class, if you will. <laughs> Eurydice here, he held up the chicken, will be your model. Yes, Mr Croucher, she will move. Yes, she may behave erratically and fail to remain in position in which you want her, but you will have to adapt, Oldman Boxer declared. The essence and existence of any great artist is his or her ability to adapt, and to adapt rapidly. It hones the technique and sharpens the perceptions. Now, what I want you to do is to capture the essence of Eurydice, her personality, her spirit, if you will. I'm not interested in the exact rending of all 633 feathers on her right wing. And no, Mr. Barrett, I've not counted them, so don't write it down. I'm interested in the dynamic of life beneath it. I want your lines to represent her form, like Prometheus who breathed life into the unfeeling clay. You are to breathe Eurydice onto the paper. Understood? You have an hour to dazzle me and leave me gasping with admiration, starting from the time I let Eurydice go. Unfortunately for Mr Boxer, his life model had a little too much life in her, and after a couple of pecks at the corn, she decided to produce her own creations on some of the students' paper as she flapped around the room. The first quarter of an hour of the art lesson was taken up with trying to recapture the elusive Eurydice, who had quite a liking for freedom. Eventually, the chicken was caught. After being horror-struck by Rex Fordley's notion of wringing her neck as a surefire way of keeping the bird still... Alderman Boxer cut a small hole in a box, placed the chicken inside with only her neck and head poking through. 
The soiled pieces of paper were replaced and the children got down to their life class. Nan stared at Eurydice for a full five minutes before committing anything to paper. It was only then, without really being aware of what she was doing, that she sketched the vertebrae in the hen's neck and then the skull itself. At this stage, Eurydice looked like a dinosaur fossil. Lightly rubbing all the detail out so it could still be traced, she faintly added muscles, tendons and ligaments to the drawing. Nan was not aware of ever having seen a chicken in this state before, but she took a guess at how the muscles might work to make the various parts of the bird's head move. She also included the bird's windpipe and tongue, but they were soon lost behind sheets of muscle or the bone of the beak. Eurydice now resembled a creature from out of nightmares. Quickly, coating over the muscles with a layer of skin, Nan began work in earnest upon the chicken's left eye, which was the only one she could see. She copied it in a detail that was nearly impossible to observe from where Nan was seated, including sketching in the straight fibres of the iris and adding in the blemish that appeared as a crack on one side of the pupil. Next, she tackled the bird's beak and made sure to include the slight chip on the upper part near the nostril and the way the top of the beak extended beyond the lower jaw, curving slightly to the left. Nan had to admit that the drawing was coming along superbly, and once the feathers were on, the likeness to Eurydice would be quite striking. She was so completely absorbed in the process of portraying the chicken that Nan did not notice the unnatural silence in the classroom. It was time to tackle the feathers. Nan settled on one particular example upon Eurydice's throat and drew in the long, hollow central tube, and then the tubules branching off from it that then became minute hair-like structures. Five minutes passed before Nan finished that one feather and stopped to rest her hand. Only then did she notice that the whole class was staring at her and at Alderman Boxer, who was stood behind her, his mouth open in wonder. Where, where did you learn to draw like this? He stammered. Oh, Mr Boxer, I'm sorry. I know this isn't what you asked for, but what I was thinking... Actually... I don't think I was thinking at all, replied Nan, beginning to witter with anxiety. But the idea behind it was that if maybe I build up Eurydice in layers, constructed all her parts one by one, I might show the essence of her more fully. I'm sorry, Mr Boxer, this isn't normally my style. I don't normally draw in this much detail. But the teacher was not listening. Where did you... He repeated again in astonishment. Don't touch it! All of you are to remain here. Mr Fordsley, you are in charge, he instructed as he ran out of the door. Rex Fordsley glared at Nan suspiciously while the rest of the class, including Tristan and Toby, had amazement written on their faces. Cayman was different. The best expression he could muster at short notice was mild interest. Nan glanced at some of the other drawings and had to admit that hers was in a different class. Within ten minutes, Oldman Boxer had returned with the head teacher. Mrs Kirkpatrick, as well as Moulton Shoreditch, Kat Sanderson and Adrian Elliot. The group of caretakers stared at Nan's depiction of Eurydice with strict concentration, sometimes pointing at particular details and murmuring in agreement. They then turned their gaze upon Nan with equal severity and she began to wilt under their combined stares. Only Moulton Shoreditch smiled at her and nodded encouragement. After ten minutes of inspecting both the picture and the girl, all the caretakers formed a huddle, and the only words Nan heard were from Cat Sanson, who exclaimed, Oh, I bet her work would take. And we're letting her leave. Not long after, the caretakers dispersed, and nothing more was said. 
It was with relief that Nan heard the school bell ring to announce the end of the lesson. Only she was getting changed for games in the girls' changing rooms. Did Nan remember that they were about to face the boys they'd fought in the entrance hall earlier? Standing on the rugby pitches furthest away from Wanish, the two classes lined up, huddling together in the cold January afternoon. Luke Lucas appeared to be impervious to the chill, as did Tristan, and the boy called David he'd fought at lunchtime, who stood glaring at each other across the two lines of pupils. During the time it took for the teacher to divide the two classes into four teams, Nan wondered why they were allowed to play rugby so close to the cliffs, but then that might account for why everyone was still wearing the trim parachutes over their sports kit. Examining the optical illusion that almost imperceptibly seemed to make the sky arch down to the ground, Nan noticed that beyond the high, thin wisps in the upper atmosphere, out over the western horizon, was a looming bank of cloud heralding the coming of a new weather front. Luke Lucas allowed for no differences between males and females in sport. Everyone was either mate or guys in his book, and everyone played together. After starting the other teams on their match, he chose two captains, Toby Croucher and a tall, solid girl called Sarah, and then picked sides accordingly. Nan, Tristan and Cayman, of course, were on Toby's team, and their adversaries in the entrance hall became their opponents on the rugby pitch. Right, guys, listen well. Luke Lucas began. Now, I understand some of you have issues with one another, which is partly why I'm going to let you play each other. Better to get rid of that tension now rather than in some unsupervised, uneducational Barney after school. Now, if any of you treat this as an excuse for a punch-up, well, let's just say, you don't want to find me waiting in there to stop a few fists swinging. Right, now, I know you've got your shoots on, but if the ball goes over the cliff, don't be a wombat like that third year who got injured trying to fetch it. Just leave it. The Sarve were playing rugby union, the sport of angels, yeah? You can go base jumping in your spare time if you want, though I've never known any pupil do it twice. His speech was over. Luke Lucas gave him a quick reading of the rules and then the game commenced. Toby was a natural forward. Tristan always played scrum half, liking the toughness of the forward game with the chance to do some running, while Cayman and Nan were happy to find themselves in the backs, hoping to stay out of trouble. It meant having to endure the cold, but at least they could keep their distance from the inhuman grunts emanating from the scrum. The first few minutes of the game were quite well behaved, but only because both teams managed to keep the ball away from Tristan and his main opponent. Tristan then intercepted a pass and ran half the length of the pitch to score, and the last 20 yards with two of the other side's backs hanging off his shirt and legs. Not long after the game started again, Tristan ran into a couple of their forwards. The ruck that ensued immediately turned into a ruckus, with punches and kicks thrown in all directions. Luke Lucas soon stormed over and parted the brawl, keeping back the main offenders with three on each one of his strong arms. Guys, don't make me come over here again, Mr Lucas warned them, or I'll just hose you all down. Just before half-time, the other team's captain, Sarah, peeled off a maul and dived low for a try. There was a prolonged whistleblow after the conversation attempt that signalled the end of the first half. After the break, the ill-tempered game began again. There were no more obvious fights, but the tackles, though legal, were harder than they needed to be. Tristan would plough through anyone without conscience or thought of safety, not least his own, and it was advisable not to be caught on the ground under a rolling maul for too long. In the backs, Nan and Cayman, who even had pockets in his shorts, had been spectators more than players, and this had suited them both. The forwards had dominated the game, and the one or two times the ball had been passed along the line to them had ended in nothing. 
However, they were suddenly pulled into play when the ball bobbled out of a ruck. One of the other team's huge forwards gathered it up and then charged at Nan and Cayman. Cayman stepped out of his way and, by a flick of the head, indicated to Nan to do the same. But she stood her ground, and as the forward collided with her, she held on to the boy with all her might. Greasy hair, panting, hot breath, and a face full of cotton shirt was all Nan knew for the next few seconds as she was rammed backwards. Other bodies were soon surrounding her in a strange collage of limbs and shirts that did not seem to connect or make sense. Nan's teammates had become flooding back to support her because the jumble of limbs was beginning to slow down. She peered down into the centre of all these bodies and saw the ball. Calling on strength Nan did not know she possessed, she began ripping the ball out of the hands of the forward. To her surprise, it worked loose. She feigned passing it back to one of her teammates and the forwards duly concentrated on him. Nan quickly found herself at the back of the mass of bodies but could not see support from anyone behind her. Without a clue about what she was doing, Nan began running up the pitch. One of the girls tried tackling her, so Nan shoved her free hand flat into the girl's face as she'd seen Tristan do, and her opponent tumbled away just as she sidestepped another challenge. Then, as Nan approached their fullback and last line of defence, she heard someone calling out to her and saw that it was one of her own backs who had been shadowing her run. Nan had no greed for glory, so waited until the opposition's fullback had committed himself to tackling her, and then she released the pass for her teammate to make a try. There was only one other score in the game, for a penalty conversion due to Tristan's late and excessively hard tackle. But it made no difference. Toby's team had won. After Luke Lucas had blown the whistle to signal the end of the match and the weary teams had shaken hands with each other, Nan gathered from Tristan's rare hug that she had played well. It was as the Elliots were making their way back off the pitch that Luke Lucas stopped them and looked at them sternly. Just my luck. I finally find a scrum half and a centre with guts and they're leaving the next day. It's a crying shame. You're just what I've been looking for, you know. And now you're up and leaving me. Luke Lucas turned away from them, biting his bottom lip with emotion. He was passionate about his rugby and spoke to them with all the feeling of an abandoned lover. Ah, oh, well, Luke, maybe it's time you moved on too. Good game. The teacher then left them to shower and get changed while he collected all the corner flags. Tristan hauled his sister up onto his shoulders and carried Nan all the way to the changing rooms, accompanied by a mud-caked Toby and an immaculate Cayman, whose sports kit still looked in pristine condition. <gasps> this calls for a celebration in the family inn tonight, called our elated Toby as he made his way to the boys' section. Cayman, you'll join us tonight. Say goodbye to our new friends and down a few of the family bums. Sure, fella. Just make it later, rather than sooner, Nan said. As they picked their way down the cliff after school that afternoon, Tristan asked her why. I looked at the timetable in the Havoc Brothers today, Nan explained. Low tides are eight tonight. That means the causeway will be exposed just after it gets dark. We're off to the island tonight, Tris. At least I am. Last chance after all. Mm -hmm.